Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast. Uh, after a little 24-hour hiatus, went and watched a band last night. Um, what's his name? Nathaniel Ratliff and the Night Sweats. Um, and yeah, a friend of mine offered me the ticket. I'd not really heard of them or seen them before, but it was really good. Uh, but anyway, got home pretty late. And also had a very big day today at work. Back-to-back meetings from 9 until 12. Uh, yeah, so I just went, yeah, I can't I can't make myself even tireder tomorrow morning. So I pulled the pin. Um, so that's all right. I'm sure we all got a little breather. But that doesn't help us on our quest to finish this book in a timely fashion, does it? So anyway... Let's go back to chapter 14.2, which I think, did we finish the chapter or are we still midway through it? I just need to double check. Yeah, we did finish the chapter. Okay, so we're up to chapter 15 today. 14.2. Swim said, excuse me. George Moore wrote a novel based on a translation by Lady Gregory of the Finian tale, The Pursuit of Diamuid. And Grainy W.B. Yeats then collaborated with Moore in writing the play. Although the collaboration had been difficult, Yeats and Moore disagreed frequently, mainly about style, and there was therefore no final version for publication. The production was well received. There was also controversy because the Irish characters were played by English actors. After the play was produced, Yeats, whose commitment had occasionally seemed to waver, defended it against all criticism. At the late stages of composition, the authors decided to add songs, and Edward Olga provided the music. The music that Olga wrote for the play forms his Opus 42, which he published under the anglicised title Grenier and Diamid. It consists of only two pieces, an introduction and a funeral march for orchestra and a song for contralto soloist. There are seven that pull the thread. Techrific said, There was little more meat on the bone in this section. A little more. I like the phrasing of this. My own paper that in the making had seemed a fine thing had faded away in the reading. And this wonderful description of utter drunkenness hired had been all Guinness. Uh, Alch, what interest is there in a language but for the literature it has produced or is going to produce? And there can be no literature when no mental activities are about. There were some scathing comments about the Irish. I had always wished to love a chin that deflected calm, clear, intelligent eyes and a quiet and grave demeanour. Okay, so I agree with Yeats, says Tech. A play can indeed be written in dialect, heck, and to prove that even Tolstoy's were a bee can aptly be put into a current-day bogan and become a piece of art. Literature, does, doesn't, literature doesn't have to be high or low. It can exist on its own merit and virtue in and of itself. Well, there you go. I never thought I would be an example to prove your point, Tech, but here we are. <laughs> um, let's see. Oh, yeah. This refers to Yeats saying, But Yeats, a play cannot be written in dialect, nor do I think it can be written by turning common phrases which rise up in the mind into uncommon phrases. Um, I don't know. I mean, what, the thing about writing in dialect, what is, what is that? Uh, what does that mean, really? Like, 
what are the implications of that? Uh, is the audience going to understand the dialect? Um, or, yeah, I don't know. Swimmer says, the moment she also says, I dislike the personal spiteful George we've seen. I like George when he skewers banquets, etc. I like this George who has zero Fs to give as long as he isn't being a mean girl. Giving zero Fs is to be unconcerned or unfazed by something, especially people's opinions. Yes, yes, I know what that means. Um, all right. We're sort of coming around to George. He has his moments, um, but it is a confusing book. It's rather inconsistent. Chapter 15. A seat had been placed under a weeping ash for collaborators, and in the warmth and fragrance of the garden, we spent many pleasant hours quarrelling as to how the play should be written, Lady Gregory intervening when we when our talk waxed loud. She would cross the sward and pacify us and tempt us out of argument into the work of construction with some such simple questions as, and your second act, how is it to end? And when we are agreed on this point, she would say, let the play be written by one or the other of you, and then let the other go over it. Surely that is the best way, and the only way. Try to confine yourselves to the construction of the play while you are together. Whoa. Sorry, I was just scrolling ahead to look at something and... Whoa, I don't know what we're going to do. Um, Yeats had left the construction pretty nearly in my hands, but he would could theorise as well about construction as about style, and when Lady Gregory left us, he would say that the first act of every good play is horizontal, the second perpendicular, and the third, I suppose, is circular. Quite so. In the third act, we must return to the theme stated in the first scene, and he described with long, thin hands that shapes the act should take. The first act begins with laying the feast for the Fiana. This is followed by a scene between Grania and Frudinus. Then we have a short scene between King Cormac and his daughter. The Fiana arrive, and Grania is at once captured by the beauty of Diomud, and she compels the Druidess, her foster mother, to speak a spell over the wine, turning it into a drug that will make <clears throat> all men sleepy. Now there we have a horizontal act. You see how it extends from right to left. <coughs> and while I considered whether we would not have done better to say that it extended from left to right, he told me that the second act was clearly perpendicular. Did it not begin far away in the country at the foot of Ben Bulban, and after the shearing of a sheep, which Diamond had performed very skilfully, Grania speaks to begins to speak of Finn, who is encamped in the neighbourhood, her object being to persuade Diamond to invite Finn to his dun. The reconciliation of Finn and Diamond is interrupted by Conan, who comes in telling that a great boar has broken loose and is harrying the country, and Diamond, though he knows that his destiny is to be killed by the boar, agrees to hunt the boar with Finn. What could be more perpendicular than that? Don't you see what I mean? And Yeats's hands went up and down, and then he told me that the third act, with some slight alteration, could be made even more circular than the first and second were horizontal and perpendicular. Agreed, agreed, I cried. And getting up, I strode about the sward, raising my voice out of its normal pitch until a sudden sight of Lady Gregory reminded me that 
No, to lose my temper would be to lose the play. You'll allow me a free hand in this construction, but it's the writing we are not agreed about. And if the writing is altered as you propose to alter it, the construction will be altered too. It may suit you to prepare your palette and distribute phrases like garlands of roses on the backs of chairs, but there is no use getting angry. I'll try to write within the limits of the vocabulary and impose upon me, although the burden is heavier than that of a foreign language, I'd sooner write the play in French. Why not write it in French? Lady Gregory will translate it. And that night I was awakened by a loud knocking at my door, causing me to start up in bed. What is that? Who is it? Yeats. I'm sorry to disturb you, but an idea had just occurred to me. And sitting on the edge of my bed, he explained that the casual suggestion that I preferred to write the play in French rather than in his vocabulary was a better idea than he had thought at the time. How is that, Yeats? I asked, rubbing my eyes. Well, you see, through the Irish language we can get a peasant Granea. But Granea is a king's daughter. I don't know what you mean, Yeats, and my French. Lady Gregory will translate your text in ink into English. Tyred O'Donoghue will translate the English text into Irish. And Lady Gregory will translate the Irish text back into English. And then you'll put style upon it. And it was for that you awoke me. But don't you think a peasant, Granea... No, Yeats, I don't, but I'll sleep on it, and tomorrow morning I may think differently. It is some satisfaction, however, to hear that you can bear my English style at four removes. And as I turned over in the hope of escaping from further literary discussion, I heard the thin, hollow laugh which Yeats uses on such occasions to disguise his disapproval of a joke if it tells ever so little against himself. I heard him moving towards the door, but he returned to my bedside, brought back by a sudden inspiration to win me over to his idea that Grenea, instead of running in front of her nurse gathering primroses, as I wished her to do, might wake at midnight and, finding the door of the dun on the latch, wander out into the garden and stand among the gooseberry bushes, her naked feet taking pleasure in the sensation of the warm earth. "'You've a nice sense of folk, though you are an indifferent collector,' I muttered, from my pillow, and as I lay between sleeping and waking, I heard, sometime later in the evening, a dialogue going on between two men. A young man seemed to me to be telling an old man that a two-headed chicken was hatched in Cabra's barn last night, and I heard the old man asking the young man if he had seen the chicken, and the young man answering that it had been burnt before he arrived, but it had been seen by many. Even so, I began but my thoughts were no longer under my command, and I saw and heard no more till the dawn divided, the window curtains and the rooks began to fly overhead. The next morning was spent in thinking of Yeats's talent, the wondering what, and wondering what it would come to eventually, if he would only, but there is always an only, and at breakfast there seemed very little chance of our ever coming to an agreement as to how the play should be written, for Lady Gregory said that Yeats's Yeats had asked to have his breakfast sent upstairs to him, as he was very busy experimenting in rhyme. She spoke of Dryden, whose plays were always written in rhyme. We listened reverentially. And when we rose from table, she asked me to come into the garden with her. It was on our way to the seat under the weeping ash that she intimated to me 
The best way to put an end to these verbal disputes between myself and my collaborator would be to do what I had myself suggested yesterday, to write a French version of the play. Which I will translate, she said. But Lady Gregory, wouldn't it be better for you to use your influence with Yeats to persuade him to concede something? He had made all the concessions he could can possibly make. I don't know if you are aware of our difficulties. It would be no use my taking sides on a question of style, even if I were capable of doing so, she said gently. One has to accept Yeats as he is, or not at all. We are both friends, and he has told me that it is really his friendship for you which has enabled him to suggest that I should try to write the play in French, I cried, but I will translate it with all deference to your style. To my French style? Good heavens, and then it is to be translated into Irish and back into English. Now I know what poor Edward suffered when I altered his play. Edward yielded for the sake of Ireland, but as I was about to tell Lady Gregory that I declined to descend into the kitchen, to don the cap and apron, to turn the spit while the chef de sauces prepared his gravies and stirred his saucepans, the adventure of writing a play in French to be translated three times back and forwards before at last an immortal relish was to be poured upon it began to appeal to me. Literary adventures have always been my quest, and here was one and seeing in it a way to escape from the English language, which I had come to hate for political reasons, and from the English country and the English people, I said, It is impossible to write this play in French in Galway. A French atmosphere is necessary. I will go to France and send it to you, act by act. And overjoyed, when the news was brought to his bedroom, Yeats came down at once and began to speak about the value of dialect and a peasant grenier. If I did not like that, at all events, a grenier. Who would be a racy of the soil, I said. A cloud came into Yeats's face, but we parted the best of friends, and it was in the cosmopolitan atmosphere of the hotel sitting room when that I wrote the first scene of our second act in French. If not in French, in a language comprehensible to a Frenchman. <clears throat> all right, it continues now to have... The, I guess it's the first act of the play, or at least the first scene, um, and it is in French. So the next, I don't know, five minutes of reading is in French. So I'm going to pause here, and tomorrow, when I start the podcast, we'll start with that, and I'll translate it into English, because I'm not reading a bunch of French. No one wants to hear that, uh, me butchering every single word. All right, folks, thank you very much for listening. Catch you tomorrow.